Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, the Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. Today we have a little bit of a special break here. Instead of Angie, you have me, Jared, the Review Gnome, and I'll be doing an interview for you today. Today we have a special guest on the Gnomecast. We're going to be speaking to Chris Spivey. Chris, would you care to uh, let people know where they should know you from? Uh, sure. They may know me from a little book called Harlem Unbound that won maybe three Goldenies a couple years ago. Also, one of their writers on the new Dune is coming out. Uh, I've done some work on Cthulhu Confidential. I'm sort of an, an Onyx Path go-to person and a smattering of things here and there. That is awesome. And Chris has been very kind as to sit in with me so that we can do an interview and talk about some of the things that he has worked on in the past and what he's got coming up in the future. So on that note, what made you decide to do a second edition of Harlem Unbound when the original edition came out in 2017? Primarily, I was hoping to reach a larger audience as the first book was self-published. And by self-published, I mean, no one knew who I was. I was writing about (laughs) racism in gaming and racism using Lovecraft as a vehicle and explaining some of the mythos and how you could apply to different areas. You would be shocked to see that no one really wanted to publish that book. <laughs> yeah, shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and so after it won all the awards and everything else, Chaosium came to me and said, hey, we like your second edition, would you be interested? And I saw as a chance that it could go out and possibly reach more people and help them engage in gaming and have this discussion I think is incredibly important. I noticed that I recognize a lot of historical names that appeared in Harlem Unbound, but I will admit I never really thought of them in context of one another or where they may have interacted. What do you think the context of the setting adds to the historical aspect of the book? Uh, everything. The Harlem Renaissance was revolutionary. The book itself, while it's about dealt with the Harlem Renaissance, is actually about Harlem itself because Harlem was this amazing point for the, for the entire United States of America. The, during the Revolutionary War, the first victory for the Americans was at um, Hamilton. Um, sorry, had a little bit of a little bit of bourbon as we're having this. It was at Hamilton <laughs> Range, and that was like our first real victory against the British, and that sort of like helped change the course of the war. It gave George Washington confidence that he was lacking, uh, and so like I told the story of Harlem, and then I targeted on the Harlem Renaissance because that was a political, cultural movement that tried to change the world. And having all of those incredible geniuses there from all different sort of backgrounds, gender, sexualities, and everything in one spot is what our world almost is now. There are so many different types of people and everything else that you need to highlight and spotlight each and every one of them. That is, I mean, honestly, that really did amaze me because, and uh, you highlight this in the book where, you know, people maybe lived in this place a few years later or in this place before that. But it it never struck me how many people that I knew of in historical context lived there in that one spot, in that one place in time, and actually interacted with one another. And I am really glad that I had a chance to read this book because it added a, an amazing perspective to things that I didn't have. <laughs> I, I, I like hearing that. And <laughs> for me personally, there was a a familiar tie to it. Uh, my cousin was Zora Neale Hurston. So I've always kind of on, in one sense lived with the Harlem Renaissance. It's always been like a part of my life growing up. 
So a lot of the history presented in the book kind of seamlessly weaves between uh, fictional events related to the mythos and actual events. And it makes those historical sections feel a lot more engaging because you look out for, you know, where the shift happens, where all of a sudden it goes from the uh, historical context to something a little bit more fantastical. What was your process for weaving this information in and out of the historical sections? Well, one of the reasons for it was that I, to be able to tell the history that we want to tell, we have to make it engaging to the reader. I could give you a textbook on the Harlem Renaissance and you'd probably fall asleep. But if we told it with someone a little bit of a fiction added to it, that helps keep you engaged with it while you're learning about these different things. And one of the things I told all the writers was that we're not just making an RPG book, we're making something that's going to educate people and move to the next step. But they need to constantly be reading and thinking to themselves, that is so cool. I need to go and look that up and see if that happened. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, to me, it actually kind of reminds me of a lot of the buzz that I saw over the uh, the Watchmen series on HBO when that premiered. Oh, yeah. And that was um, amazing now that people know so much about like the Tulsa riots and everything else. Mm hmm. So. A lot of Lovecraft's pattern, which we know Lovecraft was a racist and a horrible person, which I, I I always like to get that disclaimer out there early on. But a lot of Lovecraft's pattern was that entire cultures of people of color have fallen prey to aiding the mythos. And for white protagonists, it tended to be like individual people or certain secret societies, but as a subgroup. So in other words, it was sort of like, it's individual for these people, but for this other group of people, it's intrinsic to them that they would fall prey to this. How did you challenge that assumption in Harlem Unbound? Just the very premise of the book itself. Because even when you begin to read the book, one of the things I point out is it's assumed that you're going to be a black protagonist or for some other marginalized group, unless it's specifically stated otherwise in the text. And by putting that in the very front, as soon as someone starts reading the book and they're going through the different sections of Harlem itself or like the people, they're thinking about how they're going to engage with those people or like this deep one they're going to encounter as a person of color. And that sort of gives you that border where like someone might say, all right, evil mythos cult, I'll still call the police. The police will come in and they'll help fight, help me a little bit fight it. But looking at it as one of the marginalized groups, you're not going to call the police because that could be just as deadly, if not more deadly than this mythos thing that you're trying to stop that's trying to destroy your neighborhood. Yeah, and I really especially noticed that in some of the scenarios that's really well laid out to where the police actually complicate these investigations. They don't help. This is another problem. You don't want to pull additional heat into this investigation because if you do, it's not going to resolve well for anyone. And it's not; it doesn't even have to be like that extreme where you could have like the police, how they're doing now, killing innocent black people on the streets. Yeah. Even be just the fact that in, in Harlem Hellfighters, I think there's a, a part where you need to, where you could try to find out about a building and you go to City Hall to try to get access to a record. And before you do it, the receptionist at City Hall gives you a sheet of paper and asks for me to read from that sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. And most people will go, hey, that's nothing. All right, I read from it. Let's move on. But if you know anything about history, there was a reading test that was always given to African-Americans that they had to be able to pass to be able to engage with anything else. And so you've just experienced a piece of history where your character has to read it, has to acknowledge that like, this wouldn't have happened to a white person that would come in in this same encounter. Yeah, it's, it's really a contextualizing element there. 
And so there's all of that then takes into account that that removes resources that another protagonist might have had. So you have to think of new creative waves and that constant thinking about how you're struggling to get through gives you the smallest fraction of a minuscule piece of what the daily existence is like for Mark Lifers. Yeah, that that was that that it's actually making reading the scenarios very interesting to me because a lot of times when I'm doing reviews that include scenarios, I'm thinking of how well it flows at the table and how well it flows as an overall story. And that's actually causing me to stop and do a lot more thinking and evaluating about what the story is actually saying. It's not just saying, here's something bad you need to investigate. There is a lot more going on there. And so that in of itself, I think, turns the entire Lovecraftian concept on its head. Oh, yeah, that it's definitely, definitely true. One of the differences I noticed between first and second edition is the expanded section of scenario, since we're already talking about this. What made you want to add the additional scenarios? And are there future Harlem Unbound scenarios that might be coming out? Part of it was when Chaosum approached me and there was like, hey, we would like for you to do another edition of the book. Of course, we're going to want it to strictly be seventh edition. Mm-hmm. And I was I was fine with that. But then I thought to myself, if I have all this additional word count, I already have all these great ideas that we didn't put into the first book. What if I can get some other incredibly talented people to write some of the scenarios? Then we can include those, and it gives people more of, of an epic campaign. Well, uh, an un, a non-linear campaign they could play throughout Harlem. Because if you yeah. know, most of them are staggered by years. Like the first one, I think, is around 1919 to 1921. The next one's 22 to 23. And it goes like that throughout the seven scenario, the six scenarios, and the seventh scenario is where I uh, I threw you a curveball. <laughs> yeah, I believe I'm I'm just getting into that one at the moment, and I know what you mean by that. <laughs> uh, but since you're since you've read a little bit of it, I can say that we send you back to the 1600s in Harlem, where the Dutch just recently lost again to the English, and so now there's that entire internal strife and conflict. While you're Hundreds of years in the past, you, they're already pre for the game, and there are a couple different ways you could do it. You could do one, part of it is an ongoing campaign, or you could do it as a single session with those characters. And then you have to deal with an even greater threat in the future of Harlem. And I noticed there's even like a little bit of a hint about the time travel scenario with the, uh, the windows and another scenario where you're looking into other times and can interact <laughs> with people. So uh, that, that was actually my... My tribute to to Cousin Zora, which is called <laughs> Whispers of Harlem, because it happens primarily in the Dark Tower, which was a chance to have all the different artists and actually let people go and interact with all these amazing people in one place. And there may be a, a link between the two scenarios where you could do something really cool. <laughs> That's all I can say. I don't give spoilers. <laughs> there there may I be will... time travel, but no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's come on. It's like River Song. <laughs> I, I will say though that I, I really enjoyed writing Whispers of Harlem and I think that is probably my favorite scenario that I wrote that I've written mm-hmm. so when it comes to specific game mechanics for this the racial tension modifier really made me think about how characters that may not actively be um, the way that I was trying to frame this is that may not be actively performing white supremacist behavior but are still influenced by their racism, still show that racism with this modifier. Would you care to discuss the uh, mechanic and the thought process behind it? 
Well, all right. <clears throat> That's a little bit of a harder question. So <laughs> one of the things <laughs> to actually make the book, you have to have a lot of trust in the people that you're playing with. Mm-hmm. And while that's really important, I was not comfortable having that be the only benchmark for the game. I wanted there to be a mechanical widget that keeper and players are both aware of, so that when a keeper is doing something, a player doesn't feel targeted by that keeper. They'll go, all right, so this keeper's character is dealing with me in this way, and these are the mechanical aspects that impact my character. That lets you remove yourself from it while you're still engaged with it. And so you get a little bit of metagaming, but it's not you being attacked in the encounter. Yeah, and um, I like the idea that even beyond just literally what it's doing mechanically is the fact that it is a rule. It introduces that this is a thing. It's, it's, almost, like, it's almost like a meta pre-game discussion saying this is a thing that exists here. And one of the other the big perks, I think one of the examples I gave is how it works even if you're dealing with non-racist people. I think I use that, say for instance, you go to a party, you have maybe one marginalized investigator and a couple of white investigators go to a party. Someone says that their wallet's missing. Mm -hmm. When you leave, your friends may ask you if you took the wallet. They don't ask each other. They look Mm -hmm. at you and ask you that question. While they're still your friends, they're not necessarily being overly racist they still have those tendencies that society has reinforced on them that they themselves have not learned to move past having encountered that a lot myself yeah and i mean it it reminds me and unfortunately we have a current contextual situation going on right now it reminds me of people that i will see that don't understand why there are protests going on right now because they are not trying to actively be racist they're just really obtuse about what's actually going on in the country and it just doesn't sink in and it also is a a way to help sort of deal with how you have fair fair weather allies which i'm Mm -hmm. with you i support you oh drop a rain i can't make the protest today bob yeah and and, or even you know and, and in the context of the game like well i do think that the this is a horrible thing that could ruin all of existence but I also don't really want to employ you at my uh, place of business. I really appreciate when very simple design elements can communicate a lot. So the original version of Harlem Unbound also had gumshoe rules incorporated into it. And I realize, I understand since this was a Chaosium product, it wasn't going to necessarily do that sort same thing. But I also noticed that you've worked on Cthulhu Confidential for Pelegrim Press. How did your participation in that product come about? Um, so I'm going to take a, a few steps back since we touched some of the, on this during the scenario bit. But mm-hmm. me, when I first made the game, one of the most important parts was that you could have an entire rule book where you could play a game. You didn't need to buy any supplements or have anything else because growing right. up in Alabama, I didn't have a lot of money. So if I was going to buy a game, I had to be very specific and targeted in doing that. And using the gumshoe system, let me have it's an entire gumshoe core book, so you don't need anything else to play it. Or you could use it as a supplement for Call of Cthulhu. I reread in the course of doing, you know, writing up this review for Harlem Bound Second Edition. I've been looking back through First Edition, and I just wanted to say your presentation of Gumshoe is very succinct and well summarized compared to how I have seen the rules when I first engaged with them. And I think it's it. If I could be so bold, I would say it's actually probably a better introduction to the system than some of the bigger name 
gumshoe products. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. I can only take credit for the for summarizing it. The actual design and layout will have to go to Brendan Reese. I gave him <laughs> a lot of text boxes and a lot of words. <laughs> there were many late nights of him cursing me and my love, my my verbosity. <laughs> I think that's that's a general game design issue with a lot of people. <laughs> but he made it look incredibly neat and crisp, and it made all the the letters, all the words, and everything pop out. And so, mm-hmm. I'm very pleased with it. Um, but for Cthulhu Confidential. Uh, uh, a million years ago at Gen Con, the thing that we're not doing this year, <laughs> I went up to Robin Laws and I said, hey, Robin Laws, you've never met me, but I have this brilliant idea about equality in gaming. <laughs> he said, you know what? You're not the first person. Uh, here's some contact information for me. And about a week or two later, I we Skyped for maybe two hours and we bantered back and forth. And he introduced me to Kat and Simon, who own Pelgrim. Mm-hmm. And they had me write an adventure for Out of the Woods, and I got to write about the um, cool 1930s adventure about this integrated group of people that work for like the agricultural department dealing with horrors in Vermont. And they liked it enough that when they were getting ready to do Cthulhu Confidential, they wanted to have diversity of diversity of character. Mm-hmm. So Robin was writing Dex, who is a grizzled old white dude in the 30s in L.A. doing mm-hmm. the famous thing. Ruth was writing a, I think, late 20s, early 30s journalist in New York, Viv, who, if you ever watch in the old His Girl Friday movies, that sort of genre, mm-hmm. fit into that with a little bit more detective in it. So it was really cool. Yeah. And then they came to me and said, hey, we'd like for you to write a character. And I was like, cool. Um, I have this great idea for this spy set in the 70s. And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a rift on bond and they're like no 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 (laughs) what's your next idea it's like all right you want you want a more serious take i had all these gadgets though like lots of (laughs) laser cufflinks and so instead then i went back and i looked at some of my own time in the service and i came up with langston who was a world war ii vet that gets injured in the war and goes back and the entire course of his scenarios all happen in wartime dc in the 40s Mm mm-hmm so you've got a black wounded vet trying to make a living in D.C. And the thing is, he is a scientist. So it adds an extra level of complexity that he is too smart to be doing the work that he gets to do one day a week. So he's supplementing mm-hmm. his own income by taking cases to help other people in the community. And they really love that idea. And so I got to write four of those. And I think that is one of the things that I am most proud of. <laughs> I have the, um, I have the uh, Cthulhu Confidential books i have not had a chance to read through them yet but it is a it's an interesting concept but i haven't put as much effort into looking at them yet because i haven't really had as much opportunity to play one-on-one with anyone <laughs> but they were definitely on my list of things to acquire so they are on the hard drive with all of the other electrons worth of uh gaming stuff that i haven't gotten a chance to look at yet if you read them in order you see that there's kind of a narrative to them but they can also mm-hmm. play it in any order I will say the one thing that I fought really hard for that they didn't want me to do that it took until the fourth <laughs> scenario for them to agree to it is they got to bring in J. Edgar Hoover and show what an absolute asshole. <laughs> you don't let anyone like whitewash Hoover's history for you. Hoover was an asshole. Yeah. So this is this is the, the curveball that just occurred to me as you were saying that. So like if you had an idea for a a 70s uh bond riff 
any chance that you'll be doing one of the uh, one-to-one scenarios for uh, Knights Black Agents for that? Uh, I don't think so. My my plate's pretty full right now. <laughs> I will say the one thing that I really pitched that I'm sorry I didn't get to do with them is I pitched to have to do a, a superhero one mm-hmm. of like your own Miles Morales one to one. So you're basically like a Spider-Man character and you have all the different things, but it's a superhero genre one. Mm-hmm. Because one to one would work great as a superhero. It would. That is actually a brilliant idea because like so many games are good at doing like I I will not say that so many superhero games have always been good at doing this, but I think in the modern era we've seen a lot more superhero games that are good at doing team stories. But so many superhero stories are from the perspective of one character. And you're right, that would be a great thing to explore. Because I think I'd written my first Langston scenario and I was like, Cat, this is what I'm thinking. <laughs> and as, as any publisher that I think has a lot that they're working on, that sounds great. And the <laughs> conversation kind of ended. <laughs> sure, thanks. <laughs> we'll store that in our memory banks. <laughs> So I think we already touched on this a little bit. I was going to ask you if you uh, had thought about doing any modern day supplements related to the uh, Cthulhu mythos, but we, we kind of got uh, some ideas about what you have pitched and thought about before, but any other thoughts on that? So I'm actually doing, well, I've actually written and submitted, I want to say two years ago now, a modern day alternate history. Well, technically I used a riff on Pulp Cthulhu, but it's a superhero, modern day superhero game with a slightly altered history. Like the superheroics hit around, people think, after the World War II, and then it takes uh-huh. skews a timeline up to modern day. And you're playing as a full-blown, um, we'll say, sea-powered Justice League. Mm-hmm. Superman flying around, and you've got your Batman, you've got like your Bumblebee and everything else during the whole shit. <laughs> That's the one that um, John played in, and John played my, my Flash equivalent. <laughs> and he, he learned that superpowers do not necessarily save the day. <laughs> I may have to ask him about that one. He's a, he can only say as much as the NDA that I made him sign will allow him to say. Uh, I may I may have to poke him around the edges of the NDA. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that I got to run the entire campaign for my home group, and they loved it. I think some of them said that that was probably the best game they've ever played because it's built on a scale that lets you gain more power and you get more and more powerful and you're awesome <laughs> and that's all i can say because i myself have signed an nda okay well i am very interested in this because like i am an easy mark for anything superhero related so i will be eagerly awaiting that and speaking of things i'm eagerly awaiting you have haunted west coming out so i and... am working on today <laughs> <laughs> And I jumped on that Kickstarter rather quickly because what's funny is when I originally thought of the question I wanted to ask you here, I don't think I phrased it right myself because I was about to say I was never comfortable running a Western game, but I think it's actually the opposite. I didn't like how comfortable I could have been running a Western game with the way a lot of Western games frame Western history. And because it's either too easy to frame things as good guys and bad guys or be very reductive of what the West actually looked like. So what is different about Haunted West? Context. Everything, the 
one of the watchwords for the writers was that we need context. Like everything, there's an actual story to each piece of history that's going on. No one's done just all one thing or one thing or the other. I think one of the best examples I can give off the top of my head in something that we had to fix in the book from a different writer is that there was an outlaw whose father was a Buffalo soldier and he left the family. And so like the writer only put his father left them and that was it. Yeah. That's not right. And I go, cause I'm double checking all the facts, every single thing that everyone puts in the book. And when you go back and look, it turns out that his father was engaged in one of the biggest gun battles in the state with a whole slew of races that came and said, Hey, if you all don't leave, we're going to lynch you tomorrow. And there was a massive gunfight that ensued. And to protect his family, he had to flee the area. Yeah, that 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 is a much different context. <laughs> so there's the, the context is to it. And I want to make sure that we actually tell the actual history of the West. The actual history of the West is incredibly diverse. There is all sorts of different cowpokes from different backgrounds and everything else. And I want to make sure that we touch on the LGBTQ parts because a lot of the different cowboys and girls and everyone else engage in lots of different sort of relationships. And that's not presented in history. The fact that a lot of the First Nations peoples, what they did isn't properly presented in history. It's all about going out and, and shooting and killing them. And that's not the story we're telling. We're telling the actual history as it happened, with all the good parts, the bad parts, and the really tough things for each group that has to deal with. And on top of that, I'm layering <laughs> uh, an alternate history on, on part of the world where the Reconstruction doesn't fail. If the reconstruction yeah. had worked, that changes the entire course of the world. Yeah, and I'm really fascinated to see that aspect of it. And I, I released a short blurb of a timeline for it, I think, a few months ago, the Kickstarter backers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I know this will probably be blasphemous to people of a certain age, but I didn't start liking Westerns all that much until the more modern era where people were saying, hey, maybe not every white protagonist should actually be a good person and maybe we should show their flaws and how badly they screw things up. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty excited about it. It's, it's the biggest undertaking for a project I've done to date. Cause not only that, we're also building a brand new system from the ground up, mm -hmm. which is in of itself is a, as an arduous undertaking. I, I, think. I can imagine that's pretty daunting. <laughs> So I'm I'm excited about it. I'm still really nervous because we're still working out some of the things. And with the impact of COVID and what's going on right now with uh, martial law being declared in some places, the police shootings, it has yeah. impacted timelines, work, ability, and a slew of other things. Yeah, definitely. I originally had started this uh, process of reviewing Harlem Man's second edition, which is what led to this interview several weeks ago and there have been underlying problems for a long time but the overt realities of things have changed a lot in the last few days <laughs> so if you are watching this or watching no no one is watching this don't don't watch a podcast it's boring if you're <laughs> listening to this from a happier point in time in the future i'm very very thrilled for you <laughs> well it depends in my opinion, where the world is, well, I'll be thrilled for you. Or if I'll be hiding in a bunker with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, want a, I want a good future. I want a good future for, for people that have not had a good present. That's, that's what I want right now. 
but I digress. Um, are there any <laughs> other projects? I think that's a good idea. <laughs> are there any other uh, projects that you have coming up that you want to mention? I'm submitted my last bits for Mask of the Mythos, which is the Onyx Path Scion, where they introduce the Mythos into Scion. So I got to be not really the writer, but I was the developer for the book, and I hired a team of amazing writers to do all the actual hard work. Well, I sat back and said, this is my grand vision. Go for it. <laughs> I think that book, I wrote the least all that I have out of anything I've ever written. And I, think <laughs> I like being a developer. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's another one I've been following. I did a review for uh, Origin, but I haven't gotten a chance to dig into some of the other books for Scion 2nd Edition yet. And otherwise, otherwise, I'm just head down in Haunted West because I made a promise to my backers and a lot of things have cropped up and I like to keep my word. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I really appreciate the time that you gave us here. Do you have any closing things that you would like to say? Please go out and support as many black and marginalized creatives as you possibly can. Regardless of whatever it is they're doing, if you like anything they're doing at all, if you want to try to make a difference, go and support them with your dollars you're boosting their signals and not just once or twice, not during the middle of a crisis, but as much as you can, because they're doing work that no one else is doing. And a lot of it goes unseen, unheard until they just give up and go away. And we can't change an industry if we don't do that. That is a really important thing. And I really appreciate you coming on here and getting the chance to talk to you. It's been a great interview. Thank you so much for being on the Gnomecast. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. This show is funded by the Gnomes Do Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnomes Do website to the Gnomes Do Patreon. This Gnomecast brought to you by a deep, heartfelt plea to find diverse creators in the RPG space. Buy their games, read their games, play their games. Get a new perspective. Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Sorry, can we curse <laughs> on your podcast? Um, I, I believe we just have a PG thirteen tag, so that's that's okay. We can we can do that. Um, I won't pull out the other words I had in mind. Then. <laughs>